Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said, once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk to the people that create these games, and to talk about big industry events. Now, it has been a while since we've talked about events on this show, but today I would like to proudly advertise and discuss an upcoming event down here in Australia for Bolt Action because it is really exciting. I know on this show over the last couple of years, I've mentioned Australia had lots of lockdowns. Melbourne in particular had tons. And we are coming out of that, and the gaming scene is really flourishing. And it's really exciting to see events like Operation Sandstorm, which we're about to talk about, because not only it is it run by an awesome member of our community, it is in a fantastic venue. And again, it's just getting that bolt action juggernaut going again because for a little while things got a little quiet because we weren't able to play. But if I'm talking about the TO and mentioning what a great guy he is, clearly I'm talking about one of the most prolific voices on the Australia bolt action Facebook pages all around rad guy, an old friend of the show, Hari Turner. Welcome back to Cast Dice. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's um, it's been a rough couple of years, especially for Melbourne. We got pretty lucky up here in the Northern Rivers, but you guys had it rough down there. Look, I, I'm happy with um, how we kept things sort of under wraps, but uh, yeah, the, as a teacher <laughs> doing remote te- learning, let me tell you, I really am glad to be back in the classroom. But you are in a very different part of Australia. Now, oftentimes, uh, international listeners have very vague understandings of where things are in Australia. Now, Melbourne is the all the way southern eastern tip of Australia, if you look for the bit that hangs down low. But where you are is, again, on the eastern side, but you are far more north. Not exactly. We're sort of in the middle. We're like the midpoint between the tip and Melbourne. Um, Basically, to give you some perspective for anyone internationally listening, if you drive south for about 16 and a half hours and you're in Europe, you've probably driven through about five different countries. Yes. If I drive south for 16 and a half hours, I've gone through two states. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot of distance involved. Um, Conversely, that, you know, it's allowed my area to get off pretty lightly through the pandemic. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Um, Now you are in Queensland, as is this event. (laughs) Not quite. I'm just outside the border. I'm part of the crew that keeps the rest of the southern states safe from the marauding Queenslanders. That's right. That's right. I knew you had a key Queensland uh, link, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, you can thank me later. But yes, this event is being run in Cairns at probably the best gaming venue possible right in australia um for those that don't know queen uh, queensland cans hosts the australian armor and artillery museum which is the fourth largest open display museum mm-hmm. in the world ranking behind bobbington kubinka and samoa so it's basically a war nerd's dream you walk in there and 
the building itself is massive. It resem in many ways it resembles a double size aircraft hangar. And the vehicles on show are absolutely stunning. Um, for those from the Australia Bolt Action Group, you'll rem probably remember the picture going around of me with my hand on the front glasses of a panther. Mm -hmm. um, that is an incredibly intimidating piece of machinery. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to hold events there, to run events, um, big thanks to Rob Loudon, the owner of the museum, uh, fantastic guy. And a big shout out to Curtis Loudon and Alex. I can't believe it. I've just forgotten Alex's last name. Sorry, Alex. But those are the two guys responsible for getting me on board with this. And it's been fantastic so far. We ran Operation Thunder about this time last year. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been May. And that was the first event we ran there. We, off the back of that, it more or less jump-started a bolt-action community in Cairns now. Brilliant. And from what I hear, that's growing quite well. Um, we did plan to run an event at Armourfest. Uh, every year, the museum runs Armourfest over August. Uh, it's usually a four-day event, and you can buy tickets for tank rides and so on. Unfortunately, due to COVID, it was cancelled. Yeah. It is what it is. That's yep. the world we live in. It so, is. Yeah, there wasn't much we could do about that, but we're back this year. Uh, we've got Operation Sandstorm coming up 21st and 22nd of May, and hopefully we get Armourfest this year as well. So a lot of gaming on the horizon. That is awesome. Now, am I correct in saying that the tables are around the armored vehicles? So you, you really can't have a more atmospheric gaming experience than this. Absolutely. When we did Operation Thunder, we had the tables set up in sort of partially the German hall, and it's also the exit for the vehicles when they're taken out for rides and displays. So directly in front of, well, I say in front, but from where I was standing, directly in front of me was the Panther. Behind me was a Stug 4. Um, there was also a Tiger turret off to one side incredibly atmospheric incredibly distracting as well i was gonna um, say <laughs> it's difficult to hold focus when you have this gigantic beast in front of you and yeah. all you want to do is pour over the details but yeah as a gaming venue it is phenomenal that is so cool it reminds me um a lot of the uh there are some Blood Red Skies enthusiasts who ran a big event at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Uh, again, they were able to set things up in a way that, you know, they got to be around some of the, the vehicles from World War II. And, oh, so amazing. Now, you're a man who loves a panther, uh, famously. You may have owned one or two or 50 over the years. You Allegedly. Did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you are the greatest uh, rehomer of lost panthers. It's a valuable service I provide to the community. What can I say? It is. I have gotten a <laughs> panther from you in the past, and uh, yeah, absolutely love it. You must have absolutely loved that having a panther right there in front of you. But again, what a venue! And as you say, how distracting and yet so memorable. We used to run events in Melbourne in a venue that had TV screens uh, run throughout where you could run event timers, but it was set up so that we could show 
World War II documentary footage slash uh, World War II movies on the TV screens over the course of the weekend. And at the same time, it would have the round time superimposed over the top. And I thought that was the top level of check this out, guys. Look how cool we are. And then you just make us look so bad with this event. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a bit like that. But at the same time, it's also there's something incredibly sobering about it as well. Yeah, because you realize a lot of these vehicles are combat veterans. Mm-hmm. That particular Panther was captured in Normandy, and at some point, there is a slight realization that. You're standing, looking, touching a vehicle that had men, young boys fighting in it that were really several years younger than you. Like, I'm. Yeah. When we did Op Thunder, I was 30. And the men operating that vehicle, possibly mid, early to mid 20s, mm-hmm. it's certainly it's an experience. I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. I don't quite know how to articulate it. But there is something about it that lends a certain almost gravity to the atmosphere as well. Yeah, I can see that. Having been to several World War II museums, I definitely have realizations similarly. But I guess the gaming part of my brain and the reality part of my brain don't really cross. Uh, And I guess it would be a strange experience to have that, wouldn't it? Mm. I mean... On the day itself, you're absolutely giddy. There's just so mm-hmm. much adrenaline rushing. It's fantastic. Um, and being in northern Queensland, it's it was stinking hot. So the roller doors are open. There's wind blowing through. It's a fantastic atmosphere. Um, but it's also good in... We're able to... Do, we have plans to do uh, battle reports as well. Mm-hmm. Hope usually prior to the event. The idea being that when we run themed events like Sandstorm, we can have a battle report in front of a vehicle that was either at that particular event or saw service in that theater, just to add that extra level of detail to the events that we run. That's incredible, man. That is yeah. so cool. Well, let's talk about this event that we're running. Operation Sandstorm. Now, as you said, it's May 21st and May 22nd, and it's at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum, as you said, in Cairns. Now, what's interesting, there are several interesting things here. One of them is, I see that you also love a strange point value. This is a 1,265-point bolt-action event. (laughs) Let's not just stick with 1,250, kids. Let's get a little strange. Yeah, why not? I mean... What I do see with the standard values of 750, 1000, 1250, everyone has the quote unquote list. Mm-hmm. It's the list that they know. They can run it backwards. They can be hungover, concussed. They still know how to run exactly. that list. I've got, everyone's got one. And unless you are immediately new to the community, I refuse to believe that no one has one. Um, I, my personal 1250 list has a panther in it. You know, shoot me. I'm that guy that turns Shocker. up. <laughs> I know, right? Surprising. But it's not that it's an ineffective list. I know how to make it work. Exactly. I know what I need to do to make that list work. 
So to get variation at events, I think the more events we see where people play around with the points values, the more diversity we see in list building, which is only going to promote community growth. Agreed. Because if someone sits down and pulls out a list that they've run, you know, two years ago and goes, yep, I run that. There's no, where's the creativity in that? Mm-hmm. Where's the drive to try something different? If you have the golden standard of what you perceive to be list building, you're not actually sort of pushing yourself to try and find something that's a bit different or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe embark on a new project. But if you play around with points values, then it's not exactly you're forcing players, but you're certainly making them think. Agreed. You're giving them that incentive to come up with something that's a little off the beaten track. And who knows? They may discover something that they've never thought of before. They have an absolute riot playing it. And then they start building on that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a small event. I believe you did a 667-point event one year. I did. I've also yeah. done a 991-point event. I've uh, And Easter, the Easter event that's about to happen in Melbourne at Conquest is 1,004 points. Um, now, that <laughs> one's it. not too different. But we do like to have weird event sizes. Um, because, as you say, it keeps it fresh. In a game like Bolt Action... For better or for worse, some people love it. Some people get critical of it. The The rules haven't changed in a while. And, you know, some people think, well, you know, things are stagnating. I need to change something. And we're going to talk about that in a second because I know you and I have slightly different opinions on this. But I think one way to keep things fresh and interesting, just like you said, is to mix up the point values so that people aren't running the same armies every single time. You're sort of mixing it up, asking them to try something new. Um, Another way to do that is by having themed events, which, again, we're going to get to in one second. But I think the other third big leg to that trifecta is um, mixing up the scenarios. Now, I haven't asked you what scenarios you're running at the event, but I know, for example, that at the Easter event we're about to run, we're running two rulebook scenarios, two missions from the Bolt Action Alliance 2020 pack, and two missions from the unreleased 2022 pack that we're doing final playtesting for before we publish it. And we will be playtesting those at the event, which we've published in advance. Uh, and you can see on the Cast Eyes Facebook page if you would like to see them. Uh, Supply Drop and uh, Punch Through, I believe, are the two that out of yeah. the... From the new pack I love the look of Punch Through. Supply Drop looks good too. Oh man, we've played a lot of them over, uh, well, since lockdown has ended. And those are the two I've played the most. And uh, those may be my favorites at the moment, but they're like children. You, you know, you can't have yeah. favorites. <laughs> and the favorites change by the day. Anyway, it says a guy who doesn't have children. But, um, <laughs> Hari, what missions are you running for this? Or are we not allowed to ask that? And Missions at this point yeah. have not been locked in. Okay. Um, I'm still, I'm waiting until I get through the Easter weekend of retail madness mm-hmm. before I lock them in. Um, I find it's easier to do that when you've got a clear head rather than one that's slightly frazzled. Yes. Uh, Speaking of which, when I did the final type up of Supply Drop and Punch Through, I was very tired from a long term of teaching. And (laughs) I did. And, you know, I love it when people say, you know, people should edit their worst games better. I read those missions. I can't tell you how many times. And there's at least two typos 
permission. It drives me up the wall. It happens, kids. I'm sorry. But uh, yes, as Hari said, get a good night's sleep before you do these things. But you have a theme. The hint's in the name. Operation Sandstorm. Tell us about the theme for this event because it's awesome. So when we first pitched this idea, we wanted we knew we wanted to run a desert event. Now, the desert campaign has so much to pull from. There's so mm-hmm. much material there. Initially, we started from a point of, well, let's do something that covers the full span of the desert war. And very quickly, I had to hit the brakes there because I went, hang on a minute, that's going from roughly 1941 or 1940 through to 1943. Mm-hmm. We need to scale this back a bit. Okay, let's narrow the focus. Let's do Western Desert, narrow it even further. Where can we get, what's the, what is the one point in the Western Desert that's going to get the most amount of players and the most list diversity? Mm-hmm. And there's various arguments for different battles, but personally, I don't think you can go past the second battle of El Alamein. Right, exactly. The final, the... Eighth Army's victory over Rommel at El Alamein. What could be more thematic? You have some of the craziness of early war, and you're starting to see some of the big slabs of metal from late war. Uh, second El Alamein is where we see the Churchill first deployed, mm-hmm. uh, King Force, and you've got British, you've got Indians, you've got French, Germans, Italians. I think the checks were there as well. There's a huge range there to choose from. And there was, I did get one comment to the effect of, well, you know, you've locked out my armies. I can't really attend this event. And that's fair enough. But in saying that, we do open slather events all the time. Every gaming community has them. Mm -hmm. What I would love, what we sort of want to see is more, themed events that are less geared towards the competitive side of things and more towards the, you know, theme and historical side of things. So with that in mind, we're looking for very, you know, historically accurate listings where possible, Um, which is why in the players pack, I've opened it up to theater selectors, love them or hate them as you do. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's... The desert has... I sort of wanted to do Tunisia, but then it ran into problems there because you would have American lists that were largely inexperienced. Yeah. And as a result would blow out in the order count. Now there are arguments to the effect that Americans are easy mode for bolt action. I've uh, never made that argument. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, with a 50 cal strapped to just about everything, it's not an unreasonable statement. But often I feel like the events that run focus more on 43 onwards, Mm -hmm. and there's not so much on offer for early war, which I think is a shame because the weirdness of early war is what I love. There's so much that is, you look at some of the vehicles and you go, that's mechanically not really sound, but (laughs) it looks great, so why not? Um, The only thing you have to be careful of with early war events is, at least I feel, when you get new players in running high order count lists, 
there's got to be a conversation between the TO and the player as to, okay, can you run this list within X amount of time? Yeah. That absolutely has to happen because if not, players packs, I've seen them in the past where they talk about if you, you know, if you play over time, you will be penalized. Now, while I agree with that in terms of a veteran player, if they're slow playing, yes, absolutely. But if you've got a new player who's running a large list but has maybe only played two or three games beforehand, then my take on that is, well, that's partially on you as a TO for not verifying that that player can actually run that list within time. I mean, you want to, as you say, be inclusive. You want people to uh, come to your events, and they, you want them to be passionate about what they're bringing, and you want them to be happy with that. But you also need to make sure that everyone has a good game and making sure that everyone can get through the game because, you know, oftentimes with bolt-action scenarios, given how objective-focused they are, if you only play half a game, you're not actually going to play out the full game, and it will make for very different win conditions than if you had. Um, so you, I guess you do really need to be careful there, don't you? Absolutely. And there's nothing more disappointing than getting to, say, halfway through turn four, and the TO goes, okay, guys, dice down. And you're sort of left there going all right, well, that was half a game. I don't really feel like I got my value out of that. Yeah, especially so, when you have people traveling from far away. As you, we both have traveled interstate countless times to play in events, you want people to have a good gaming experience, and you want them to be able to, as you say, get through the games uh, and feel like they had the full experience. Otherwise, why travel all that distance to play a couple of half games? It doesn't feel good, right? Absolutely. And especially when you're talking about the distances involved in Australia, you need to try and make sure exactly. the players get as much value out of your events as possible. Because otherwise, you know, we're not a community that can afford to be cavalier about events. Once it starts stagnating, it stagnates very quickly here, I've found. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Now, I, I do want to touch back on something that you said with America and... Uh, early war. Now, America does have that interesting reputation as being one of the more forgiving, inexperienced armies because they have the fire and maneuver national rule where they don't have the minus one for moving and shooting. Um, when they advance, inexperienced troops, if, you know, given the move, distance, shooting, you know, light cover, whatnot, usually ex regular troops will be hitting on fives or sixes, or sixes, but the Americans are often, if they're running, or if you're running inexperienced, because you have that additional minus one, is usually sixes on sixes. And having been playing a lot of bolt action recently, I've been reminded of just how the odds shift between sixes, needing sixes to hit, and needing sixes and then sixes again to hit. It's night and day difference. And I'm I have done the maths in the past, and I don't have them in front of me now to tell you the exact odds difference there. But if you have inexperienced Americans who are this, who are then hitting on sixes rather than sixes on sixes regularly, that is a massive difference. So in that way, I guess Americans are possibly one of the more forgiving, inexperienced armies. But I, I don't necessarily think it's end of the world. No, it's not. It's certainly, they're a great army to learn bolt action with. Exactly. And 
I absolutely encourage people to do it. Um, I'd also recommend, I think Americans and Finns are probably the two go-tos for learning bolt action because both lists are very forgiving. Mm. Um, Finns don't have access to inexperienced troops, but their national rules just make them so durable. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to go past them. Having and... just played Finns in uh, the <laughs> event two weeks ago, I concur completely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny how everyone who plays Finns always has a bit of a soft spot for them. Yeah, It's just a shame there's no 30-man plastic box, otherwise I'd dive straight back in. Um, getting distracted. Yeah, I was going to say, off topic. Yeah, with Americans, I think at some point there will be an early war event for them. But I'm not going to throw my hat in and say that it's going to be in the desert. One of the theatres that I feel doesn't really get the focus it does, well, the focus that it deserves, and this is largely in part to the fact that that it is so restrictive, is the Pacific Theatre. Now, I'd love to see an early war event that, you know, the Marines on Guadalcanal or the Marines on Wake Island or the Americans in the Philippines with the Japanese Mm -hmm. invading. But therein lies the problem of you essentially distill the forces down to two major players with a few subsidiaries. Exactly. And you won't, you won't get that diversity in the player base. And with the Japanese rules being the way they are, regardless of what the theme of the list is, I've always felt like I'm playing the same army when I play against Japanese. It's never really been a case of, oh, well, I'm playing, you know, a cavalry list or an infantry list. It's, yeah, I'm playing Japanese. They're all fanatic. I have to work so much harder to get them off the table. Which, I don't know, personally for me, it's not a particularly enjoyable experience. And if Rubes is listening, yes, Rubes, I am referring to that list. (laughs) He's never going to let me live that one down. No, I think it was, what, three squads of 12 guys? Uh, Was it regular? It was a a six-dice list. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't say that is the hardest thing ever. But the large squad Japanese armies are deceptively durable, especially if they're not inexperienced. Yeah. Um, Everyone talks about the Japanese, and I've mentioned this on several podcasts. Uh, Play Japanese, they have to be the inexperienced horde. You have to have the militia with the Kempatai officer or the the bamboo horde with all the toys and the Kempatai officers to back them up. No, you don't. In fact, I've been playing Japanese for years, and I've never played. I guess I played the militia thing once. But, you know, I think Japanese should be played as regular or as, heaven forbid, occasionally veteran. Uh, Do something Mm. different. Um, yeah, change it up. Yeah, like, why not? Then again, I don't play the typical jungle Japanese either. I'm I'm playing the yours the are Siege of Shanghai, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, mm. I don't have Suicide AT in that army because they didn't use. It was the Chinese that were doing that in that conflict, not the Japanese. My God, a Japanese army without suicide? Nope, not one. I'm shocked. Yep, <laughs> I I have a Kampatai <laughs> officer and no green units in my army. It's good um, lord, man. I know. It's uh, <laughs> theme. Who would have thunk? Anyway, we're not talking Japanese. We're not talking. Uh, God, even the Pacific. Let's let's dive back into Operation Sandstorm because I can talk bolt action with you all day, man. But 
I guess one of the things I've noticed when I've been going through the Operation Sandstorm pack, besides the awesome theme, besides the cool point values and the venue and all the awesome things that are there, and we're going to get into a lot more in a sec, you and I have very different opinions about where bolt action could be going at this point, as in I'm very much the old school of let's play rules as written. Like if we want to mix it up, let's change the scenario. Let's change the point value. Let's change the tabletop. Let's do that sort of thing. And you're doing that as well, but you're also dipping your toes into the field. And you mentioned this off air that maybe the old Bolt Action Alliance or boltaction.net rules slightly changed things for version one before version two came out to sort of tweak them. And your pack has some fairly significant rules changes to bolt action that means that for example i know that lee avery um, who's been on the show many times is my regular opponent who's coming to your event not only is he painting a new army from scratch because he is desperate to you know get a dac army done but he's had to rejig his list because he built it not realizing there were cheaper lmgs for example can you talk to us a little bit about some of those changes because they are, I, I did say significant. I think they're more minor changes, but they can add up to significant changes in someone's list. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of tweaking rules, I initially, when I first got into bolt action, I was like you. I was very rules as written. Mm -hmm. I did, version one for me, I didn't really, I didn't, bottom line is, I didn't have the experience in version one to see what would be, you know, what could change, what would be an ideal change, what would be a less than ideal change. When version two came out, I know there was, it created a few ripples within the community. There were certain rules that had changed that people were not a fan of. Um, one of the key ones I remember was motorbikes lost the ability to move and fire their LMGs. Mm-hmm. That certainly rubbed a few people the wrong way and saw a few lists change quite drastically. Um, lately, with the speed at which campaign books have been released, there have been some units and some rules that have had less than clear rules. And I've seen forums where those units have come in for a certain amount of discussion and the threads have run on for a very long time. So when I sat down to write this event, I started looking at, well, what could we do to play around with things a bit? What could we change that wouldn't drastically require a complete re-understanding of the game, but could be integrated fairly easily? Mm -hmm. Now, Probably the first one I'm going to touch on here is the LMGs. So back in version one, when we had the Bolt Action Alliance rules, LMGs were knocked down to five points, which in the context of version one, I had no problem with. LMGs were 20 points for three shots. It wasn't an efficient points buy. Mm -hmm. Version two, with the increased rate of fire... Um, five points I felt was too cheap, but I certainly wanted to play around with the cost of an LMG. So I settled on the 10 point mid ground. The other change that I brought in for that was, hold on a second. 
Uh, there we go. So a lot of what we saw, or at least what I had seen in the past with the formula list that I'd mentioned earlier was if you gave people the option for cheap LMGs, you would start to see uh, MSU spam. So, you know, six-man veteran squads with two LMGs, possibly with Fanatics as well, makes them very difficult to shift, but it also, while it may be quote-unquote thematic for the context of that list, it does lead to a certain less than enjoyable gaming experience for the opponent. Mm -hmm. So to try and combat that, because I had played around with this idea for the players pack for Armorfest, um, instead of just dropping the points for the LMGs and leaving it as is, hard sort of bake in a cap for that. So if you take an LMG, it's 10 points. Fair enough. But if you want to take two in a squad, if that squad allows you to, then you've got to have at least 10 men or the maximum number available. So it then forces the player to go, okay, I want to have a firebase squad with two LMGs. Now, do I plump for 10 veterans or do I maybe adjust that to 10 regs that can take two LMGs? As far as I know, there's not, a few, there's not many squads that can do that at regular, but the ones that can... It gives people that sort of... It makes them stop and think. It makes them go, well, do I need to adjust my play style a little bit? Mm-hmm. Is there a way I can get the same level of firepower from a different combination of units? Do I need to maybe play towards a more mechanized style? Do I maybe drop a transport and take an additional squad with an LMG? It's... It's that thing of just putting the spark in the brain, so to speak. It's getting people to, rather than just jump on Easy Army and bang out a list in five minutes, stop and think. Just take the extra 15 minutes to go, well, where do I really want to go with this list? What am I really trying to aim for here? Um, Certainly, the Schutzen squad from the Western Desert has come in for some criticism regarding the free lmg mm-hmm. and i knew that if we were running sandstorm we would see shoots and squads so to offer that level playing field i rem- i've had this conversation with players uh outside i've basically said look if you're taking two lmgs and a shoots and squad it's 20 points but you've got to take the full complement of men yeah that's the catch um, having said that, I don't think we're going to see mad shoots and spam. I know there's at least a few Italian players coming, um, many of whom seem to be running armored platoons, which is interesting. Uh, Italian tanks being amazing. <laughs> I was going to say not the most durable of vehicles, but oh, as an Italian player, <laughs> I assure you, Italian tanks are amazing. Italian armored cars are amazing. Uh, Everyone talks about how Italians have terrible national rules. You know, people talk about, you know, the BAR, for example, being a quote-unquote national rule for the U.S. because very few other nations have them. Well, Italian tanks is very much an unspoken national rule for the Italians, (laughs) and I assure you, they are very good. 
That's good to know because I've got an opponent up there who seems to think his Italian armoured platoon is going to waltz all over me, but I'm sorry, buddy. It's not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. He's leaning on them. They're a crutch. Once they're taken away from him, he won't have a leg to stand on. Now, Um, speaking of machine guns, LMGs aren't the only thing that you've changed a little bit. No. So, infantry team MMGs. Now... For many years, I've heard people say that these are less than desirable. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to not see that. It's a 50-point infantry team that can be one-shotted by a sniper. And considering these were largely used in a suppression role during the war, the mechanics don't quite reflect that. So we added in... A, a variation to the pin value. Now, I know the juggernauts in the UK have changed their way of using them so that you take a pin for being declared that you're being fired at by an MMG, and then if they actually hit, you take an additional pin. I decided to trial a D2 plus one pin mechanic so that that MMG is always putting some level of suppression on you. That's greater than average so it's always going to be doing two pins minimum it gives players an incentive to take an mmg at the it still retains the vulnerability that it always had but perhaps it's something that will play it'll be a bit more of a trade-off um a bit more bang for your buck really because we can honestly all say that we've seen situations where if one unit had just stayed in place for a little bit longer, we could have won that game. If they'd failed that order check, it might have that might have been the winning failure of our opponent. But MMGs have never been a staple in lists, and they've certainly never been a staple in lists up around this way. I know there are a couple of insane people who like running them. Hi. Um, how you doing? I'm that guy. Uh, I would like to quietly point out that uh, my main man, Gorshin, uh, in Western Australia, just won an event. Uh, he is, of course, one of the guys on the HMG Historical Miniature Games podcast. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing that episode because he ran an American list with, that's right, kids, three media machine guns and won an event. I want to hear it. I can't wait. Hit what me. a mad lad. That's amazing. Yes. I th- I think there's actually one other player on the East Coast that runs three MMGs. Um, he's one of my longtime regular opponents, and we have a bit of a TO grudge between us. But him and Gorshin are probably the only two players I know who consistently run the three MMGs. So with the theatre selectors opening up selections to certain unit options... I'm hoping that we see a player rock up with two MMGs. I would love to see someone lock down a flank with two MG34s. I think it'd be great. It's all about getting that variation in the lists again. And, you know, we tweaked HMGs as well because a lot of people feel that they underperform for the points that they cost. I mean, a 25-point upgrade for a plus-one penetration, okay, I can see the argument that, yeah, that's worth it. You are essentially getting a, you know, a watered-down light autocannon. 
But at the same time, these are weapons that often had a longer range. So for this event, I've buffed their range out by 12 inches and I've increased their shots to four. It's just a few more dice being thrown around. And as far as the lists go, so far I've not seen a single HMG. Um, wow. I would... There are definitely a few vehicles that I would consider with that, with those rule changes that I've yeah. already been giving a, a, a filthy little eye to recently anyway. <laughs> um, hmm. That's... That's fascinating that no one's yeah. jumping on that. No. Um, maybe it is because the HMG has a, a certain less than stellar reputation in the community. I'm not sure. But at this stage, no one's leapt on it. And maybe it's, maybe it's as simple as the absence of American lists. Yeah. Maybe that's the deciding factor. I mean, they, American lists are where you typically see the proliferation of HMGs if you're going to see them anywhere. Because most other nations can't take them. I mean, of course, the Soviets can because hashtag Soviets, but not yeah. to the same depth that the Americans can. Um, um, absolutely. And in British lists, you don't really see them until you start seeing that American Lend-Lease equivalent exactly. arriving. Whereas with American lists, it's every time you lift up a model, oh, look, there's a HMG underneath it. I didn't see that. You there. can put one on your artillery toe. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag America. Hell yeah. Oh, wow. And the angriest little tractor that could. Really. I actually just got one of those for. I was so I was. Uh, I've been working on my GI Joe bolt action army for years and years, uh, and I realized I needed a tow to get my HAL laser cannon uh, onto the table. And I was researching the toys, and they have an artillery tow, uh, a munitions carrier. And I was like, awesome! Oh crap! It's got a big gun on the front because. 80s toys hashtag they have to have the big gun on the front i was like okay i can't actually use this in bolt action maybe i could like take the gun off and just use it that way and then i looked at the american list which is what i've been running my gi joe army in sure enough you can put a machine gun on it and i went ah don't have that problem cool i'll just put the machine gun on it love americans Oh, fantastic. I'm waiting for the uh, American HQ choice that allows you to take 12 guys all carrying HMGs. I oh, think that would just be... Yeah, no comment. Somewhere, somewhere a player just... I was just speaking to their soul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, now you have put some restrictions in, though. I mean, you, you've buffed a couple of things as far as guns gone, but... For this event, you're allowing theater selectors, you're allowing armored platoons, and you're allowing generic reinforced platoons. But each one has a slight tweak for this event to make sure that everything is sort of, to keep it in alignment for El Alamein and the time period at the time, you've added some restrictions. So shall we go through some of those that you Absolutely. think really help keep things on the up and up and uh, reflect what is there at the time? Yeah, absolutely. So starting with theatre selectors, um, they within the nature of a theatre selector, it plays around with the force organisation that we have access to through the generic platoon. Mm -hmm. So I've stipulated that it's with TO approval only. Now, most of the selectors, are they're fine. It's the more, abu more quote-unquote abusive ones that I've seen are from the Pacific theater or from the Eastern front. Mm -hmm. um, I know people mentioned with some trepidation, the 
I believe it's the Tarawa Japanese selector that allows yeah. three snipers. And I think the Soviet Stalingrad selector from the armies of the Soviet Union book, mm-hmm. where everything can be fanatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and is when you're playing that army. Yeah. It's, you know, it it's not the uh, most balanced of selectors, but I can see why they've done that for theme reasons. However, for this event, for this yeah, event, I can English. Um <laughs> Theatre selectors, TO approval only. Most of them, it's a case of rubber stamping. Every list that I've seen so far has been above board. Um, The one thing I have stipulated is that naval observers are a definite no-no. Now, the problem with Easy Army is that every theatre selector that allows a free British observer also allows them to upgrade to a naval observer. Now... This isn't Normandy. This isn't Iwo Jima. Right. There are no large battle wagons floating offshore, bombarding the enemy lines. So naval observers are right out. There are artillery observers, and fair enough, go for your life. Mm -hmm. But naval observers are something that... Personally, my take on them is that they don't have a place in the landscape of bolt action. They do as a perhaps a scenario-only option as a, you know, a one-off event, but access in a larger context, not particularly, and certainly not when they are so one-sidedly available. I mean, at the moment, the nations that can take them are the Americans and the British. Well, there's plenty of historical evidence to state that the Germans used them, the Soviets the Japanese, you know, it's that that's a unit that needs adjusting. The third uh, change I put in place for theater selectors is this one will make sense later on when we discuss reinforced platoons. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get access to the additional armored car or tank slots. More on that later folks. And then the final word is just generic reinforced platoon restrictions apply again, coming up now armored platoons because I know this one is going to raise a few eyebrows. Yes. So, there's... For a while, I saw a lot of... uh, I don't want to say arguments, but certainly a lot of conversation that said, you can't run infantry platoons and tank platoons in the same game. I don't necessarily disagree, but at the same time, I don't necessarily agree. Um... Certainly, I disagree entirely in the context of late war, um, especially when you've got Germans, Soviets, Finns, Hungarians running around with five-point can openers. Mm-hmm. Um, early war, there's more of an argument to be made there. But at the same time, early war, the armor values are a lot less. It's a lot easier to crack open an armor 8 vehicle than it is an armor 10. Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to knock on the head was the proliferation that we've seen of HE spam, which let's be honest, this started the second version two dropped and templates came in. HE has always been more viable than AP, Mm -hmm. but there were certain times where I looked at tournaments and went, it's gone too far. It needs to be dialed back especially in the context of armor platoons, you have to be careful of giving them an open slather. 
I remember one list was pitched to me for an event that I was running up in Caboolture where a player wanted to bring four horos. Now, for those who Yuck. don't know what a horo is, that's a Chiha chassis with a heavy howitzer strapped to the top of it. Yeah. Now, could you imagine five of those bombing around? Quite literally. Who's going to have a good day there? I mean, even medium howitzers can be a bit on the nose at times. Mm-hmm. So the restrictions I put in place for this were you can take an armor platoon, you can have a maximum of one medium or heavy howitzer in the platoon. You can have a maximum of one anti-aircraft vehicle in the platoon. So straight off the bat, you're looking at armored cars or you're looking at tanks. Mm-hmm. Those are your three mandatory choices. Now, if you want to take an SPG, that's fine. If you want to take an anti-aircraft vehicle, that's fine. But you are going to have certain restrictions in place. And those are those restrictions. So you're not going to be able to run as much as I would love to run a platoon of flak violing 38s on the back of trucks. Mm-hmm. As much as I would love to run five of the ugliest SPG ever made, and I don't care who protests, <laughs> the Bishop is hideous. There's no getting around it. Love it. It's a box. It's disgusting. But those are the kind of lists that I don't want to see, you know, if you want to bring those to a competitive event and the TO allows it, go for your life. But for a themed event, what we want to see is more, you know, more life accurate to what was there. Yeah. So Panzer 3s, you know, short barrel Panzer 4s. If someone's mad enough to run Crusaders, go for it. That's fantastic. I think you're insane, but go for it. Mm-hmm. If you want to run those reinforced colanders that the italians call tanks then absolutely do it um you know play not around throwing with it. any shade there at all harry no not at all um you know this is all just the obligatory pre-event smack talk alex knows what's going on um and then finally we get to generic platoons now there's been talk that i've seen where people have said theater selectors are the most ripe for abuse I've also seen arguments that say generic platoons are the most ripe for abuse. And I think on balance, generic platoons are probably the most exploitable framework that we have. They, there is no restriction on the, the amount of mixing and matching that you can do. You've got access to pretty much anything. Um, for this one, I've just... For starters, I put in no intelligence agents. Mm-hmm. Um, as a mechanic, I like it, but it's not really something that I see should be at themed events. Like, I get why the rules exist, and I understand, you know, the context that they're in. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, let's just keep things simple, because at the end of the day, we the community in Cairns is still new. Mm-hmm. And in order to make these events as enjoyable as possible, we keep the changes minimal. That being said, there are a certain amount of changes within this players pack, but these are all geared towards the theming of this event. So straight off the bat, no intelligence agents, no special characters, no naval observers. Pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. I 
honestly can't think of any competitive any event that I've been to where they've allowed special characters. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, they're points ineffective as it is, so mm-hmm. that's pretty cut and dry. Um, flamethrowers, I've just cut that down to one per platoon. I <sighs> flamethrowers are one of those things where they can be good. They can be terrible. Mm-hmm. They can leave a sour taste in the mouth. A maximum of one, it forces players to choose. Do I take one that's mounted in a vehicle? Do I take one that's on foot? Do I free up points to put a transport to move it closer to the opponent? All that comes into play with capping that. The other one was a maximum of one free unit. Um, with the savings that I've introduced in the rules tweaks there's less justification for bringing you know more than one free unit and to my knowledge it's not actually possible within the framework of the rules but i just want to i put that in place just to make sure just to cover my bases and say so that no one turns up with two free units and i sort of go hang on a minute how did that get in yeah and then they're sort of stood there looking at me going, well, you tell me, mate, you're the TO. Yeah. And I'm just trying not to scratch my head and disappear behind something large and armoured. <laughs> um, honestly, folks, if you can get me out of the Panther, more I was power to say, you. <laughs> All right, get out of the Panther. <laughs> I, side note, I did actually get inside the Hetzer when I was there last time. Oh. And that is a cramped vehicle, folks, yeah. let me tell you. I'm 5'11", and my head was bumping the top of it so yeah don't get in that if you're over 511 you mm-hmm. won't have a good time the other change i brought in was i've opened up the vehicle slots for reinforced platoons so with theater selectors being brought in that often vary the number of armored vehicles you can take mm-hmm. with armored platoons being on the table from the get-go I felt that change was needed so that players wouldn't feel like they were being outmatched or, you know, outgunned. Yeah. With that being said, it's uh, it's an either-or choice. So you have the option for 0-2 armoured cars or 0-2 tanks. Now, the key thing to remember is if you take two tanks, they have to be in your... Uh, armies off book or you know list from campaign western desert they have to be listed as either a tank or a tank destroyer mm-hmm. so the main gun has to be an anti-tank gun so we're not looking at self-propelled artillery or any aircraft vehicles if you put in a list that has two bishops i'm going to immediately reject it the bishop can fire in an anti-tank role but it's primarily an spg mm-hmm if you put in a list that has two half-tracks with flak 38s on the back, out you go. Come back with another list. The other change that I've put in, soft-skin AA vehicles. Now, I've got a certain soft spot for these. I like them. I think they look fantastic. I think they're wacky as hell. And I think it's a shame we don't see more of them on the table because they compete for the same slot as a tank. Mm-hmm. In that vein... I've allowed them to be taken in place of artillery, but not free artillery pieces. And I think it's only the free French Western Desert list that allows them to take uh, free artillery. So in the Western Desert list for the free French, they have access to an anti-aircraft truck. Mm 
Now, that's got a dual-mounted AA HMG on it. That can be upgraded to a quad HMG for an additional 40 points. So all told, if you took that at regular, you're only shelling out 100 points. Now, personally, with the changes made to HMGs, the increase in range, the increase in rate of fire, I think if someone rocked up with 100 points that spewed out 16 shots at 48 inches, mm -hmm. that would rub me the wrong way, just slightly. Um, it is only a soft skin, so it is very vulnerable, but still, it's better to knock that on the head entirely and just mitigate the possibility of that happening rather than having to triage it on the day. Yeah, I mean, given how many people have complained over the years on and off about, what is it, the Tokarov, the uh, Soviet anti-aircraft anti machine gun truck that yeah. has all the machine guns on it um, <laughs> for a very cheap price that, you know, that can lead to some feel-bads. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other change that I made, and this is, I've purely brought this in as an event special rule. So... It's the second battle of El Alamein. Artillery fire is ranging up and down the front from both sides. You've got units calling for artillery support every chance they can get. Mm -hmm. So why exactly would we always have heavy howitzers being deployed? Why not tweak it a little bit? So what I've brought in is a special rule called where's our fire support? And basically it says the battles are raging all along the front and fire missions are being requested by anyone with a radio. When an artillery barrage is called in by a forward observer, including a misfire, before rolling to assign pins and damage to the relevant units, roll a D3 and consult the following chart. Now this is a D3 chart. So on a 1, 2 or a 2, the result is beggars can't be choosers. If a 6 is rolled, use the light howitzer HE profile instead of the heavy howitzer profile. On a three or a four, it's better than nothing. If a six is rolled, use the medium howitzer profile. And on a five or a six, wait, over, use the heavy howitzer profile. So it's that, again, it's that mitigation of things that can be problematic. If a British list rocks up with a free observer, that's 100 points of a free unit. If that observer then goes on to neutralize four units, it's earned back its cost in you know un unmeasurable terms yeah but for an event if you just play around with a few things particularly artillery barrages it can lead to a more dynamic game because you might be there thinking okay i've got tanks pushing in on my flank i'm going to drop the artillery barrage on them it's the my, la my last order dice of the turn let's see what happens all right let's roll for that barrage oh damn i've only rolled for a light howitzer Okay, they're taking pins, but they're still a threat. I still need to deal with them somehow. It gives players, it puts more choice on the table. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you know, that player might be think the opponent might be thinking, great, he's dropped his barrage on my tanks, they're gone. There's nothing I can do about that. Oh, he's rolled a six. Great. What? Oh, he's only rolled a light howitzer. Okay, I might lose one but I'm probably going to still have two, I suddenly have more options. You, It stops players from feeling like the game ends at point X. We've all had those games where an artillery barrage has come in and wiped out our three prime units, or mm -hmm. an airstrike's come in and pinned out our lines, and before we unpin it, 
a second airstrike comes in and pins out our lines. And yes, I'm looking at American lists there. Mm-hmm. Um, given the current state of the game, I don't see that happening very often. But it's little tweaks that make events memorable. You know, it's someone might come away from this event and say, think to themselves, oh, you know, that artillery rule was really good. I like that. Maybe I might try and run an event and implement that. You know, it's, in a way, it's kind of, you want to run an event that people are happy with, but at the same time, you also want to plant the seeds so that in future when people from who have attended those events look at running events, they might actually look back to your players pack and go, I really like that. I want to implement that. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, it's by nature. I like to tweak things, I think. Um, and certainly with this, I've done a fair share of tweaking. Yeah. And it's one of those things that whenever, when I talk to someone about an event down here in Australia and something gets changed, be it changes to Tiger Fear with the Panzer IV, a limit on flamethrowers. I know that it's usually the Scots that come out in force and message the page, yes, Alistair, I'm looking at you, saying, I can't believe you do these things. Um, why don't you play the game the way it's supposed to be played? Blah, blah, blah. I get it. And as someone who doesn't typically change the rules, uh, I understand that point of view as well. However, I, Hari, I, I'm really impressed with the depth of which you have really gone in and considered uh, what armies are bringing what to your event and how you as the TO can help mitigate and eliminate uh, the feel-bads for your players and so that everyone has a good time in the context of this event. And it's a themed event around a particular time period, and you've really gone out of your way to try and get the rules to reflect that as possible, man. My hat's off to you. The Just having read through this player pack, I had to read it three or four times to get my head around. It's only three pages. It's very simple. It's, it's like a flow chart. It's not like it's hard to read, but there's a lot there. And in order to get the nuances of it, I had to read it a couple of times. And again, I just think that speaks volumes to the amount of effort and time and consideration you put into this um, so that your players have the best time possible and throw in the, the venue. My God, this is awesome. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I've always had the opinion that as a TO, it's not that you have, it's, how do I word this? As a TO, I've got a responsibility to make sure that this player's pack is as watertight as possible. Yeah, It's purely on me to make sure that players have as good a time straight out the gate. Yeah. So if I leave loopholes, if I leave questions unanswered, all that's going to do is snowball and create problems on the day that are then going to run into problems later on. Mm-hmm. Because if I run an event where, you know, four people have a good time and 16 people have a bad time, what are the chances of those 16 coming back to my event? I know that those four are going to come back, but I'm more concerned about the 16 that have walked away feeling like they've gotten less than their money's worth. Exactly. And, you know, for a long time, we didn't see theater selectors at events. We didn't see... There was a certain reluctance to allow campaign books... Um, and not without justification. Some of the units in campaign books don't 
function as well as they could, mm -hmm. uh, not so much in a competitive sense, but more within the wider narrative of bolt action, they throw a stick in the works. Um, case in point, one of the national rules from Campaign Western Desert, the South African rule, mm -hmm. where units that take damage from small arms can actually ignore the pin if they don't take the pin token itself as a physical entity. Now, on paper, that's fine. You fight at my regular squad. You've inflicted no damage. They don't take a pin. That's great. I like that. It's themey. But when you transpose that onto a list where national characteristics are applied as a blanket rule, mm -hmm. you then run into situations where you have SAS or commandos or, God forbid, Gurkhas not taking pins from small arms fire. Yeah. And that's where you start running into these problems. Now... If you want to go to a hideously competitive event and run South African Gurkha paratroopers that ignore small arms pins are, you know, hideously effective in close combat, go for it. But yeah, say, slow golf clap. Congratulations. You yeah, found a like, loophole in bolt action. There's a couple. Good on you. Yeah. yeah. It's like you managed to break a not perfect game. I don't really know what you're angling for here. Would you like a cookie? I can give one to you, but... <laughs> You know, it's not gonna. It's not something that can fly at events that I run, and it's so. It's not something that I think Australian TOs can sort of look away from. We, I mean, there's an unspoken acknowledgement within our community that we self-moderate. Mm -hmm. If there's problems that arise, we address them. Exactly. With the distances involved, as I've said earlier, we can't be cavalier with events. We have we nurture this community. We help it grow. It's it's a responsibility that we've taken on. Um, we haven't, you know, signed a document or anything. But the second we put our hands up as TOs, that puts us in a position of prominence within the community. Exactly. I myself have assumed the mantle of adminning the bolt action group. I'm still in shock from that. Um, honestly, I thought it would just people would accuse me of using the page just to sell Panthers. Um, <laughs> the thought did occur there's... to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's one listener out there who's still desperately holding on for that Panther. And I'll tell you what, Rudes, I've got five of them right here and none of them are going to be yours. <laughs> but yeah, it's... Be aware of the pitfalls within the game system. If you're writing a player's pack and you're relatively new to, one, to running events... Do not, under any circumstances, be hesitant to reach out to the community because there's a good core of veteran TOs out there. We all know our stuff. We know what can possibly go wrong, mm -hmm. and we're more than happy to help out. Like, this is not a... We're not sort of a bunch of elitist snobs. We don't sit in our in our ivory towers and write players' packs and then look down our nose at everyone else. Exactly. You know? So yeah, um, and the other, one more change I'm going to mention, which I think might make people very happy, is armoured transports. Mm-hmm. I dropped their points cost by 20 points. I just, they're so, for vehicles that are so iconic throughout that conflict, we don't see enough of them, as far as I'm concerned. I would love to see armored rifle platoons on the table. I'd love to see Panzergrenadier platoons in their half-tracks on the table. 
but honestly, I see them more in trucks than anything else. And I'm just, I look at the cost and I think that's what's slowing, that's what's stopping them. Why shell out 89 points for a 251 half track when for 54 points you can get a truck that does the same job and faster? Yeah. Now, what does yeah. that do for some of the smaller armored vehicles that are already fairly cheap? Does that make them cheaper than trucks? I'm trying to think of um, Indian carriers in particular or the 250. I guess the 250, the mini half track, isn't that cheap, is it? No. I mean, the 250 has always suffered, I think. And as someone who's gone from British lists to German lists and back again and everywhere in between, on paper, the brain carrier still comes out on top of the 250. Um, for this event, yes, brain carriers, two five zeros, they will be 40 points for a brand 55 for a two five zero. But in saying that it's, I think it's a worthwhile trade off. You're still going to see 50 point brain carriers because people are, are going to take that extra LMG. Mm-hmm. There might be someone crazy enough to stick the anti-tank rifle in the front of it. I don't know. Um, I did that one time and it didn't work out well, mm-hmm. but German half tracks, I feel, have always been underperformers. Um, certainly, American half tracks suffer from this as well. I feel at approximately a hundred points for a vehicle with a weapon system that fires three shots, it's not exactly a great deal of bang for your buck. Um, and considering the British predominantly use carriers in a scouting role. We see a lot more of them on the table than we do, than I guess probably we should. Mm-hmm. But who knows? So far, I haven't seen any carrier spam lists. Um, I might see one. I might see none. Yeah. It's purely just, let's see what happens. And, you know, if there is any craziness, we can always reel it in. Exactly. Exactly. Because you, like a lot of tournament organizers, particularly in Australia, you look at the list coming in, and if something doesn't look like it would fit um, the theme of the event that you're running, you'll actually go back to the player and say, hey, can you take a look at this, please? Yeah. I mean, so far, the most thematic list I've seen has been a German anti-tank gun list. Uh, two pack 36s and two Flak 88s. It's a very static list, but at the same time, it's very themey. So mm-hmm. I'm keen to see how it goes. Definitely, man. Definitely. That, I'm still, I haven't seen enough of those static lists in the wild yet. Thanks, COVID. So I'm very (laughs) curious to see how they roll out on the tabletop. Um, And I'm hoping to see some more of those uh, in Melbourne events coming forward just so we can see exactly what they do and how they do it. Because it's a really interesting change to the game. Definitely. Yeah. Especially... um, you know, with the missions that you're running, uh, like supply drop and punch through, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in the context of that event, it might not be the best list to take. But if someone did take that, I'm curious as to how that would play out. How are you going to claim it, push for objectives yeah. when a large portion of your points is tied up in static units that really don't want to be moving anywhere? Yeah. It, you know, it's that thing of it opens up, you know, dynamic play choices players have to think they have to you know be more careful with what their order sequencing is exactly 
And especially since a lot of, what, more than two-thirds of Bolt Action's missions, uh, if we're going with rulebook missions, are literally objective-based. So how are you going to get them? I mean, I can understand blasting opponents off of them or making sure that opponents can't get to specific and particular objectives by having fields of fire set up in the right way. But then how do you go get the other ones? And is it a... isn't it attrition slash denial game? I, again, I need to play it. Um, and it's one of the things I'm looking forward to just trialing soon and seeing what people do. Yeah, really looking forward I to mean, it. I mean, yeah, like at a glance, I'd say a lot of it comes down to a mental game. Mm. If you're playing something like Sectors and you plonk a honking great 88 in it, well, that's certainly a massive deterrent, but mm. it's a one-shot weapon. So, do you take the risk? Yeah. Do you? Does it simply force your opponent to use cover more effectively? There's there's quite a few metrics that start coming into play where maybe that list isn't as formidable as we think it is. Maybe it's a paper tiger, True. or maybe it's absolutely horrific and it will destroy anything it comes across. Who knows? It has, it's yet to be seen. It's an unknown quantity at this point. Exactly. I look forward to talking to you after your event and seeing how that list does. Yeah, definitely, mate. I'm keen to see how it goes. Um, the player is Andrew Krarup, who is a fantastic supporter of the community. Um, nice. His business, The Warriors Den, does mm-hmm. a massive amount for prize support for events up and down the coast. He's phenomenal. Like, hats off to you, mate. You're brilliant. Well, Hari, let's talk about how people can get tickets to your event. Talk to us about this. All right. So the tickets are purchased by the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum website. Um, For every event that I run there, that will be the method by which all tickets are purchased. Now, because this is a a business, there is a certain increase in cost. Um, The museum has to have something to show for running these events. Right. So the ticket for this is $135. Now, each ticket covers includes the following. So for starters, if any player purchased their tickets for Operation Armour, which was the Armour Fest event that was cancelled, your ticket will be transferred to Operation Sandstorm at really? no additional cost if you intend to attend. Nice. So, yeah, that's our way of thanking you for supporting that event and bringing you to this one. Now, you also get a guided tour of the museum with photo opportunities and hands-on experiences. So for those of you wondering, can I climb on the tanks? Yes, you absolutely can. Um, There are certain vehicles that you won't be allowed on, and those will be mentioned during the tour, but there are plenty of vehicles to climb on. Um, The last time I was there, I got inside the Hetzer, I got into the, what was it, the Jackson? It's an M36 tank destroyer nice. and one of the half-tracks as well. Not a lot of room in those half-tracks. Um, everyone was a lot skinnier then. And uh, they didn't mind rubbing knees. No. They, you had to get very cozy. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what it would have smelled like. Um <laughs> One other thing is there's a museum exclusive baked into this ticket cost. Now, 
The museum does reconstructions of vehicles, and where possible, these are done with period-accurate materials. So the Tiger they have just reassembled has been stitched together from several different vehicles, um, all of which were destroyed during the course of the war. Currently, the museum is offering... Uh, they sell the weld from the vehicles, so any leftovers are sold via their website to generate revenue for the museum. So for this event, we've been given access to 18 pieces of Jagdpanzer IV weld, which I believe is currently under construction. These are not available for general sale. So if you attend this event, you will be going home with an absolute one-of-a-kind exclusive from this museum. The That's final awesome. part of the ticket is a 10-round shoot with a rifle. Now, here's the kicker. If you come to this event with Italians, you will fire an Italian rifle. If you come to this event with French, you will fire a French rifle. Germans, British, so on and so forth. Now, these are weapons that, as far as I know, are sourced from the war. That's amazing. So, you know, you are holding a piece of history in your hands. And while you might not get to fire it in anger, you certainly get to fire it down on the range. And to be personally honest, firing a Lee Enfield has always been a goal of mine. Uh, that's a rifle my grandfather carried. And that's a link to the past that I would love to have. So, yeah, we hope that, you know, we give value for money, and personally, I think we've more than delivered here. That is so cool. Oh, man, so many, oh, totally worth the price. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, hopefully we get. Hopefully you come up for Armour Fest. It'd be great to see you up there. <sighs> uh, I think I will have to send Lee for this particular event, but uh, I'm hoping that for a future event I can make my way up. It's It's been a long time since I've left Victoria for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, it'd be good to see you, man. Like, it's been too long since we caught up. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Hari, again, thank you for putting all the time and effort into this event, and thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Uh, I, I can't wait to see how it goes for you and to hear the after-event uh, report uh, to, to see what the big takeaways were, given that you have a, a few spinning wheels here to, to see what, what comes out at the other end. But... Just from hearing, uh, talking to you off air and hearing what people are bringing, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic event. And again, you put all those hard yards in to make sure it will be. So, mate, hats off to you and thank you again for coming on. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here. It's great having a chat and it's good to catch up. It is, man. It's been too long. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you very much for listening to Cast Ice. Uh, I know that I took a little bit of a break for a little while. Work got a little bit ahead of me, uh, and this is, as I've said before, a one-man show. But Cast Ice is back. There is a lot of recording going on this week and next while I'm on school holidays, uh, and plenty more to come in the weeks and months after that. So there shouldn't be any big gaps coming up again anytime soon, uh, if I can help it. But look for lots of great bolt-action content in the coming weeks and months, 
as well as additional episodes of the Warlord Games official podcast. We already have another one recorded, and uh, I do talk about some pretty exciting things with Alessio, and we do have uh, coverage of other independent and other games as well. A lot of great stuff coming down the pipe. If you have a request about what you would like to hear on Cast Ice, I know many of you have been requesting more Bolt Action content recently. Please go to the Cast Ice Facebook page uh, and message me there. Hi, my name is Brad. Guaranteed a response. Just please keep in mind, I live in Australia and I do occasionally sleep. So uh, it might take a few hours before I reply, but you are guaranteed a reply. I guess when I start talking about sleep, it is probably time to call it a night. As our good buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Ice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Yeah.